Hello, and thank you for listening to the MicroBinFi podcast. Here, we will be discussing topics in microbial bioinformatics. We hope that we can give you some insights, tips, and tricks along the way. There is so much information we all know from working in the field, but nobody writes it down. There is no manual, and it's assumed you'll pick it up. We hope to fill in a few of these gaps. My co-hosts are Dr. Nabil Ali Khan and Dr. Andrew Page. I am Dr. Lee Katz. Both Andrew and Nabil work in the Quadrum Institute in Norwich, UK, where they work on microbes in food and the impact on human health. I work at Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and am an adjunct member at the University of Georgia in the US. Welcome to a new thing we are doing called Software Deep Dives, where we interview the author of a bioinformatics software package. Today, Hankton Bakker is in the hot seat with Sepia. He's an assistant professor at the University of Georgia. That's the state, not the country, in the US. I work with him through the Food Safety Informatics Group at, at the University of Georgia. Um, Hank's an alum of the Women Lab and, and has a rich history working on, on things like listeria and campylobacter. Correct me if I'm wrong uh, later on, please, but uh, I, think, I think fungi and a lot of other things out there. He got into computational biology and bioinformatics from working on all these different things. Um, and we're interviewing him today on sepia. So first of all, Hank, what is sepia? Sepia is, a, I would say, yet another uh, read class. And why do we need it? Being a taxonomist and some, somebody who uses read classifiers a lot, um, there were just a lot of things that I wanted to have in a read classifier that I didn't have yet. So I wrote a CPI to just address all those things. So CPI uses a couple of data structures. One of them is the compact hash table that Kraken 2 uses. And actually some of the, of the principles or algorithms that, that Kraken 2 uses to classify reads. And one of the, the, the main components in read classification is the use of taxonomy. And taxonomy is very important. And I'm a taxonomist by training. So integrating new taxonomies, for instance, the GTDB taxonomy versus the NCBI taxonomy. There are several taxonomies currently that are being used in the, the metagenomic field and seeing how that influences your ability to classify reads and especially reads that are from organisms that are not necessarily well known. That, that really interests me. So it, it's a tool to experiment with those things. The other thing is that I'm interested in data structures. So how can we the compact hash table of Kraken 2 is already pretty compact, but can we make that more compact with combining it with something like a, a, a perfect hash function? So CPI has those things. You say a hash table there. So how are you actually storing the sequence information? How are you encoding it? The sequence information, currently it's encoded in bits. So we have the, basically the compact hash table or the hash table with the, the perfect hash function is one big factor containing, uh, what is it, unsigned 32 integers. And we can use those unsigned uh, 32 integers to store both information of part of the sequence and the associated um, uh, taxon that goes along with those sequences. So we first hash the sequence and then we 
use that hash to find the position in that factor. And then we use either the, the hashed value of the sequence of your minimer to confirm that really or part of your sequence to confirm if, if that's a good match or not. So how long so, would your k-mers be then in that case? Currently, my k-mers can go up to 31 base pairs, but so you don't use the full 31 base pairs. And one of the things that I'm excited about is that I can actually can extend the size of k-mers. So we can go up to uh, 64 base pairs. Like um, the language that I'm using, Rust, has an unsigned 128 value. So we should should be able to make it even bigger. I don't know if that affects the, the performance of the, the software. So I got really excited when I looked at your code and I saw this is Perl because it has many of the same constructs as Perl and similar kind mm -hmm. of uh, layout and syntax and whatnot. But I was very disappointed then when you, you told me you'd abandoned Perl for some other, you know, frivolous fly-by-night language called Rust. Can you tell me more about that? First, I have to explain the, probably explain the reason that I, I never abandoned Perl. Like I Good. can read Perl. I write most of my scripts and things like that. Where Python is fast enough, I use Python. That's my go-to language at the moment. But if I write code that really is performance critical and I don't want, I want to read classifier, I want to classify a couple of million of reads and, and, and tens of data sets within a limited amount of time, that's where I use Rust. So they, they say it much better than, than me. Like they, they say a language empowering everyone to build a reliable and efficient software. And I think you can really, with Rust, you can really get the same performance out of Rust as uh, C and C++. You can get at that level. I don't see, actually, which parts are you seeing that have Perl on it? Like, I feel like it, when I started learning it, going from Perl to Rust, I was like, this, it just blew me away. Like, I had to go step by step in the tutorial and learn a whole new language. Mm -hmm. I, well, the way I see it is, you know, you look at, it says use and then library and then a semicolon, you know, that's very pearly. True, true. Okay. Which it got me. And then, you know, all the, uh, the curly brackets and stuff like that, you know, it is a very beautiful language actually. Yeah, I think so. I got, honestly, my experience was getting so frustrated with it, but like being just like gobsmacked when I translated my Perl over to Rust and I got like a 10 or 20 fold speed increase. That's insane. Yeah, this language is insane. So so that that's absolutely, that's the reason I chose it. I mean, the other thing is, is I can read C++, I can read C, um, just to look at algorithms and at the details of some people's codes. And, but what always frustrates me to, is to, to to skip between files like your header files and whatever you need. Here you just have one file. That's where your code is. Okay, let's get back to why you didn't just use Kraken 2 and why you went and uh, made up your own uh, classifier. I think Kraken 2 is fabulous and it's fast, but there are just things. I don't know if, if it already exists, but one, one of the things that, that frustrated me was that there wasn't a batch mode. So if you start a Kraken 2 run, the first thing that, that the software does uh, 
is load the, the index or database, whatever you want to call it. And if it's large and no matter how big your computer is, that takes a long time. That usually takes longer than the actually the, the actual action of, of classifying your reads. So one of the things CPI can do is just a batch mode where that loading the database is done once, and then you can specify tap delimited files with your, your, your uh, sequence data and, and your sample names, and it will just do it in one go. So it takes like a minute to, to uh, load your 80 to, to 90 gig index, and then it takes like 10 seconds per sample to, to classify the reads and give you nice summary files and all those things. So um, one thing with read classifiers I find is that you can have bits that are shared by different species, like maybe mm -hmm. mobile genetic elements or yep. AMR genes or virulence genes or whatever. And that can sometimes throw some weird curveballs, and it's just influenced by the number of samples that happen to be sequenced. Um, you know, Absolutely. Pathogens, yeah. you know, like say salmonella causing mm -hmm. foreign illness, that's massively yeah. over represented than just generic salmonella you find in the soil. So how does your, your classifier work in that case? In that case, it, it will just be as bad as other classifiers. That's the other thing that I'm, I'm very focused on indexes that, that use reference type or not type strains, but the reference strains instead of like trying to index all of salmonella, like a median and centroid strain from a population and use that as a reference. So that takes away some of those, like being, some genera being overrepresented, but you still have that, that same problem. If you use hyperlog log, for instance, to estimate like how many gamers are, or how many minimizers, whatever, are, are represented by some of those those elements. Say say you you, you sequence um, a, a soil microbiome and you run your read classifier and you have like a hundred thousand reads that match salmonella. But it turns out that those hundred thousand reads hundred thousand reads should be enough to to cover like a, a salmonella genome several times. But if you find that actually it's a subset of the camers, a small subset, say two thousand. Camers uh, compared to the whole genome, it should be like four million, five million camers. Then you can say it's probably a shared gene instead of the instead of the organism itself. So I'm working on that currently. The other thing that I find really helpful that I, I that standard currently that I started to to integrate into uh, CPI from the start is. Um, it gives you a, what I call a hit ratio. So a, a minimizer-based estimate of the Kamer similarity, average Kamer similarity of your, of your reads compared to the reference strain or the strains that are classified. Uh, the reads are classified as such. So kind of and like a MASH uh, score of some description. Exactly, yes. It correlates really well with, with ANI on average nucleotide identity. And I find that really useful to, to see if you have a really high score, since you're working with Cambridge, that, that's something between like uh, 0 0.8, 99. You never get a one unless you have like exactly the same strain that you recovered from the metagenome. You have a pretty good indication that, that you have that organism. 
the other thing is that you can filter out a lot of the noise. So if you have these read classifiers, things get classified as it's usually overclassified. So these classifiers always go to the lowest level that you can get. But if you have like a camera similarity of 0 0.01, you know that's clearly noise and that's that's just the, the read classifier being doing its its overclassification thing. Do you um just switching gears for a second, if you feel like it, do you do you want to give any hints on what you've been using CPF for um, on any applied research? I've been using it. So currently I'm working on some metagenome projects like using metagenomics to predict species that that like animal intrusion in farmlands and using metagenomics to predict like how long ago that animal dropped its feces on your on your land we're working on mapping the microbiome of the what is it of the retail environment so at the the the, the far end the actually of the, the, the farm to food um, continuum in food safety. So, and see how we can, can relate microbiome data to the occurrence of, of things like Listeria or Salmonella. And uh, where I use CPA there is if I have 16S data sets within seconds, I can quickly scan through data set and pick out reads of interest. That's especially with like, uh, an AMPCON database, if you use 16S, that's super, super fast. You don't even need the, the batch mode there. Have you um, used it for coronavirus yet? No. And I know it can do coronavirus. Yes. The, the, the next it's, thing you need for your paper when you write it up. Uh-huh. It's coronavirus uh, capable. I made sure of that. Because uh, you're going to get that everywhere, I'd imagine, at some point. Mm -hmm. reagents contamination will be coming through and, and whatnot. So tell me, go, going back to your, I suppose, animal droppings uh, and food safety bit, does that mean that, say, if you get maybe contaminated lettuce or on a cantaloupes or whatever, that you can give some kind of classification on where that might have come from? Yes and no. So the, one of the, the first things I did for that project was see how long like the, the, the native microbiota of animal droppings so that's in particular in indicative of, of of what species was associated with those droppings how how fast that disappears so what you see first in the first couple of days is that most of the the, the typical uh, obligate anaerobes disappear they're they're the most indicative i think but i was quite surprised so it it depends but it depends how long ago that the, the fecal contamination occurred. That, that's basically the, so, I mean, if you think about foodborne pathogens like Salmonella, uh, Listeria, and E. coli, they're, they're actually some of the, the species that I found in that data set, especially we had some nice, nice Escherichias that last the longest. So with Listeria, um, I always, or I've always heard that it's very difficult to take from the environment and you have to, you know, do an overnight culture, that kind of thing. You can't mm -hmm. just pick it up yep. off the ground and, or in a factory and do something with it. So how are you, what type of samples would you be dealing with in that case? So that's absolutely true. 
So all those those data sets um, were what we're currently doing. So you find listeria, and you find it in, in small numbers, even in data sets that you sequenced without any prior enrichment. So what we've done for a couple of these projects is that we did uh, cultural enrichment. So that takes actually a lot longer than an overnight culture and effort all those things. It, it, it means that, that you get a, a sample and you expose it to an environment that, that's positively affecting a, a few organisms or your organisms of interest. So it, it can be by using certain antibiotics, medium, etc. So for, for listeria, that would typically be initially an overnight culture. And it, it takes at least a couple of days to, to get from like a soil sample to your, to your listeria cultures. Okay, so maybe let's get deep into mm -hmm. the technical bit, right? Yes. And I, I, I recall that you were involved somehow in Big Z uh, with Zamico. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And D did his kind of work influence you in any way? Absolutely. So um, I have another piece of software called, and it's also in Rust, um, it's called Color ID. And it uses a, a version of, of Bixie that's an, a, a Rust version that can be actually downloaded as a crate. It's, it's, it's publicly available. So it, it builds a Bixie in memory. So it, it's an in-memory uh, use of, of a Bixie. So you have your index it gets loaded in memory and, and that makes it really, really fast. So it, you cannot make Bixies that are as, as big as like the entire SRA and CBI's SRA, but you can, can uh, index 10,000 of, of, of strains in a relatively small data structure. That kind of terrifies me because I know that Big Z at one point is running on a half a terabyte of RAM. Exactly. Yeah. So, so and, how much and RAM? How much RAM does your or algorithm require? That all depends on how many uh, accessions you have. I guess what I'm asking is, can I run it on mm -hmm. my laptop, or do I need a bigger virtual machine to run it on? That all depends. <laughs> so, if you want to do, say, all the the current GTDB version R202, so the latest version of, and you want to have something with all reference strains. When, and when you say all reference strains, how many give or take is? We have, here we have 50,000 references. So they, they are everything, archaea, bacteria, they, they include everything from cultured organisms to uh, metagenome amplified genomes. Any humans? Not yet. <laughs> so I, but if we look at the GTDB database with sepia, um, so that, that is 98 gigabytes and that has to be loaded into your RAM. So That's, it won't work on my laptop. It won't work on your laptop, no. But 98 gigs is quite good, actually, compared to, I know Kraken can require a fair whack of RAM. Some of the things that I've been experimenting with 
is the, the, the K-mer size versus the, the, the minimizer size and how much that influenced the accuracy of your um, read classification. So like after playing around with some values of K-mer of 31 and a minimizer size of, of 21 actually gets you a significantly smaller um, database, even if you use the same values in, in, in Kraken. So is that kind of indicating like there might be people who might want to know what the parameters are for lower memory or those who want to have it absolutely, faster? Absolutely, absolutely. So yes. are you kind of are you kind of documenting that or detailing that? Yes, I will. We know, yeah. and I forgot if we actually said that on the recording, but we literally just got access to the to, to Sepia um, just as we started uh -huh. this podcast. So we're yes. kind of talking and looking at the same time. Yes, and I really <laughs> like these these talking about these things I, because I'm literally writing the markdown, the, the, the updated and extensive markdown. So one of the things since I've, I've been working on this over several years is that the help functions are really, really helpful. And I can tell you that because there are things that I didn't remember from, say, over a year ago, and I look at my help function. And so everything works with, with the help function. Well done for doing it right. And, and I have to say that one of the things that makes it really easy is this one crate in... What, what do you mean by a crate? Is that like a container or something? Or Are they um, close to like library files? Yes, they're library files that you can download from the from a central depository. Could they not just subset libraries or, or modules? Mm -hmm. Yeah, they, they call them crates. Grand. So, yeah. And, and you get them at crates.io. And, and so the, the crate that, that's responsible for me writing good help functions is actually called clap. The clap crate is, is, is fabulous. One function that I want to add, and that's the read filter. And that would be, it, it's going to be integrated into CPI. Now I'm going to have it as a standalone. So have you written a paper on this yet? No. So I'm, I'm working on a million papers. <laughs> So I, after this, I will, will get something out as soon as possible. I think that's mm -hmm. always the thing with writing software. You're writing loads of code and potentially help functions. And then you have to write a paper. I mean, there are a couple of, of, of neat things. For instance, the a data structure that, that, that uh, uses the perfect hash function needs to know the set of all k-mers or minimers mm -hmm. that you want to index. Perfect heart uh, hash function. So, I wrote a uh, variation on the compact hash map, and that's the compact hash set. So it's a set that can take gigantic, ginormous uh, numbers of 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 k-mers or whatever, and just you can infer the set of all k-mers in your data set before you start building your your hash map. So yes. can you take two different databases and then do set operations on them and say, basically start doing like GWAS? Oh, we're onto something here actually now. That would be interesting. I haven't thought about that. Yeah, because, you know, what's in mm -hmm. common, what's different, and mm -hmm. then extract them out and then maybe go and mine for interesting things. Mm -hmm. 
Yes, that shouldn't be too hard. And if you can do more complex set operations, you can do some pretty phenomenal things. Okay, off we go. Implement that, and uh, we'll we'll write the nature paper then. You could have like a set of um, reference genomes, which are your cases, a set of reference genomes are your controls. And then you say, okay, go and build me two separate databases, then get, say, the intersection or whatever is not in mm -hmm. the intersection. And then you have like a unique database, maybe for finding Listeria. That would be pretty cool. So are you trying to scoop yes. yourself on Plasmatron? It's basically Plasmatron <laughs> oh, that I'm yeah. reinventing here. Uh, obviously done in a better way because Plasmatron was very much hacked together. I was curious that you were talking earlier, much earlier, about the batch, being able to run uh, samples through in a batch. And then I noticed in the source code that you've got some callouts to Redis. Is that what's underwriting that? Or what's your use of Redis no. in this? Uh, Redis. So th this is one of the, the, the leftovers. I started building my own compact hash set for those those big things i tried to do it with redis but it ran out of basically i couldn't use that to set operations there so that's actually vestigial. the sets were too yeah all right there's a lot of vestigial uh, stuff in the current code all right. which i may remove so redis uh for those who don't know this is like it's an in-memory or it's like a cache data structure store and basically it's just a giant key value storage you can use it for a whole bunch of different things and you'll find it all over the place so the way the uh, taxonomy stored actually in the index is different from from kraken 2 so there are a lot of things that are very similar to kraken 2 but also different like so the taxonomies are stored as as directed acyclic graphs so in that way you can can look up like a taxonomy of a single organism or if you you identify the camer fairly quickly so it goes from the lowest to the highest taxonomy level say seven or eight steps that you need to infer a taxonomy and then you can do some set um, functions to figure out what the most recent common ancestor is. Well, what would the output look like for, for Sepia actually? Because is it the sort of Kraken classification where each read gets assigned a thing and that hierarchical number of reads or bits or whatever part of chunks that support yes. a particular taxon and then like the number that uniquely map to a particular taxon? Currently, there are two outputs. Like there is a summary file but it doesn't use that hierarchical structure of Kraken. I, I mean, is that just uh, a straight uh, assignment to a particular genus of species, much like the yes, Bracken output? Exactly. So, oh, so that's good. Yeah. So what it gives you, it it gives you like a, a taxon, the number of reads that hit the taxon, the average Kamer hit similar or minimizer Kamer, depending on what you're using, uh, similarity per read if you use the, the HLL, so the hyperlog log function, it will give you an estimate. It will give you the total number of minimizers or, K, or actually camers that were found for that specific um, taxon, the cardinality, and then the, uh, what is it? The total number divided by the cardinality. So you can infer like kind of coverage per organism. Okay, that's good because that, sounds more digestible than sort of your raw the raw kraken like the kraken report mm -hmm. that you get yeah that can yeah. be i mean that's not something you can just palm off to someone else who yeah. doesn't necessarily know how to interpret it 
um yes so it's good that you've got something that sounds a lot more like a lot more human or digestible mm -hmm. to keep the code fast everything is like in 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 u32 or whatever um uh, encoded like all your taxonomic designations but then at the moment that you have so the summary file and the per read classification file it uh, everything is human readable so i made sure of that let's see there is like a, a a separate folder in the sepia repository that says scripts and that's a, a python script that actually generates chronoplots or the input for chronoplots from the the classification file that that sepia uh, generates another file that they call the, the plus file so it will give you not only the that the average k-mer similarity, but also the um, distribution of how those k-mer similarities are. So you can see what the curve looks like. And I made that in the past to, to kind of see if I could do, use a, a machine learning algorithm to filter the noise from the, the real hits. No, it's good. No, that sounds good. And definitely the corona output is, professors like the corona output. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah nice and, and clickable for them yes exactly <laughs> interactive yeah exactly yeah. i think we kind of touched on this but i am curious how what happens if there are reads that are very diverse very diverse completely unrelated to your reference database what is the chance that this program is going to falsely assign it to one of those taxons just because it has no idea. I think you touched on this yes. confidence value that would uh -huh. help, but what would that, be the propensity here? So the propensity of, of I think, read classifiers in, in general is to just assign it to the, the, the lowest taxon possible. That's where you get it. So that's where that, that or similarity comes in. I mean, then if you give a closer look, it's usually like a very, very low average, average Kamer, Kamer similarity that really throws off those, those um, throws out those, those hits as being true hits for, for that organism. Chances that it just uh, gets classified as no hits. So I have specifically a no hits. It's category but i mean the the danger is is real i mean you i've heard a couple of of talks i think virology talks where where they they used class read classifiers and then were thrown off by by weird um or disturbing um classifications which turned out not, not turned out to be the things things they were yeah, like uh, you're seeing your pestis on the subway or whatever that was. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, exactly. that was a naive yeah. case, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, can you test your software with that? That would be a good test. Yeah, I'm really curious. Is that data set still out there or has it been retracted? We can make up a data set. I mean, it's <laughs> not that hard. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> I think there are some comparison papers out there for read classifiers kind of like assemblathon, but it's read classification. I can't remember mm -hmm. the name of the papers. And they do have some data sets that they use that are these kind of gotcha ones, which should throw off some of these tools. And so that that would be a good benchmark if, if Absolutely. you know pulling those yeah. down and having a go at those.
Although more seriously, maybe the first benchmark should be like something like the Zymo uh, mock communities, that kind of thing. Oh, the sky's the limit, right? You can yeah. play around, try and break it as much as we, we, <laughs> we can. <laughs> yeah. Now the code is out. We can stop uh -huh. trying to break it as much as we like. Right. Actually, yeah, Hank, what, what do you think that people should be looking at first when they get to the repo? We're like, we're coming up with all sorts of awesome things. Definitely awesome, but you know, just, maybe you just, have awesome just, things too. Just give the soft a run and see what you can do with it. So the current implementation of, of the hyper log log function is not something I wrote myself. So it makes my code very slow. I wouldn't do that. The other thing I use it for is read classification of Oxford nanopore reads. Because you have that flexibility in setting those parameters that well, you can, can really play with with the, the ideal parameters to do read classification for, for Oxford nanopore or noisy reads. So somebody first coming to your repo should try out their Oxford set on that? What you will see is that your average gamer values are of course highly effective. They're not comparable to, to what you will find for um, Illumina data. It does a pretty good job, I think. Right. So I know that yeah. um, Minimap has a has an error model to cope with PacBio and Nanopore. I don't know if that's a thing you can just flag. <laughs> to... I, 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 I should have a look at that, definitely. So currently, I think that the best, if I use smaller databases, for instance, just with, with a bunch, like Calamari, if I make a Calamari database with just a camera size of 21, which is fairly small, so you can, can wiggle your way past those critical errors that, that Nanopore includes. It, that works pretty well. So smaller cameras definitely seem to do a, a good job, as long as they're not too small, because then you have everything and that's not very valuable. Did you have so, like a two-pass uh, hierarchy kind of thing? So maybe you start off with cameras of say 11 or something crazy small of a second pass. Yeah. I think I've mentioned it a couple of different times, but it's definitely worth mentioning again. Uh, it's just, um, it's a database of curated reference genomes, mostly bacterial, mostly foodborne, um, that we are using in-house over here, but I also have it up on GitHub. Um, and, and it's basically a, a, a list of accessions of these things and a script to download them and documentation on how to build it for different databases. And I'm looking forward to um, documentation on how to build it for CPA. I just found the data set that was used for the comparing the read classifiers, and that is the CAMI. I've just blanked on the name, the CAMI mm -hmm. data set. So that's critical assessment of metagenome interpretation. And I think the paper is in Nature Methods 2017, Skirba et al., if you want to look that up. Yes, absolutely. For the audience, you know, <laughs> if they want to use it themselves. Me too. I want to see this. I haven't seen this before. Oh, there's a couple of them. There's Skirvetal, there's one uh, McIntyre 2017 in genome biology, which I think is the sequel to that. So between that, you you know, if you're able to outperform everyone with those, then it, your thing is golden yeah. if any, anyone wants to play around with those data sets. Yeah, I've, I have a feeling that, that um, really strain level differences with read classifiers, unless you, you use like a, a really big camer size and all those things. So, so one thing I want to mention is uh, CPI will also check the consistency of your taxonomy. So if there are, for instance, if the same genus name is found in different lineages, it will flag it. 
so you can can have a look at it or if that that's the main main thing so if you combine a plant taxonomy with a bacterial taxonomy you will find that there are some genus names that are used in both domains of life so that's the thing is that that note notes in my taxonomy don't they they have the name is just the whole taxonomy string that fixes it not just the genus name i learned that quite pretty quickly when i start to combine um, plant and bacterial taxonomy with zoological text Hank, where, where the name sepia came from oh yeah so the name sepia is actually a tribute to kraken because kraken is a big octopus so a cephalopod and sepia is also a cephalopod and it refers to the rust color like the, the the pigment that you can make from its ink sac which is rusty colored so it's it's a humble cephalopod compared to the big kraken all right well thanks for a great discussion this was a quick chat for sepia the classifier that Pinkenbacher created there's always some interesting facts about these tools so i'm glad that we talked it through especially where the actual name came from um, i love diving into rust and everything else about that too for those who are listening you can check it out on github it'll be in the show notes and that's all the time we have for today see you next time Thank you so much for listening to us at home. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or the platform of your choice. Follow us on Twitter at microbinfi. And if you don't like this podcast, please don't do anything. This podcast was recorded by the Microbial Bioinformatics Group. The opinions expressed here are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views of CDC or the Quadrum Institute.